Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Houston Sports Weekly, KPRC 2 Plus's sports podcast. I'm Ari Alexander. Later, I'm going to be joined by baseball writer Jesus Ortiz, longtime beat writer for the Houston Chronicle, covering the Astros. Also covered a number of teams around baseball. Now runs R. Esquina, covering Latino athletes. Ortiz has a coveted Hall of Fame vote, and he's going to break down why former Astros closer Billy Wagner deserves to be a Hall of Famer. And coming up later, we're going to talk NFL with KPRC 2 Texans insider Aaron Wilson about the draft, about whether or not the Texans should win their last game or two or tank or more, and whether or not the Texans should be bringing back Lovey Smith and some of this coaching staff. But we are going to start with baseball talk. And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to go through Jesus's Hall of Fame ballot, which I'm going to pull up right here real quick. Here we go. So of the Hall of Fame ballots, there's a number of players on here, and I'm going to talk about some of the guys that Ortiz did not vote for. Uh, guys that are on the ballot because of their long career but are definitely not Hall of Famers. Former University of Texas closer, Houston Street. Guys like Mike Napoli, Johnny Peralta, Jason Wirth, Jared Weaver, those guys, Bronson Arroyo, Matt Cain, those guys are on the ballot, but uh, are definitely not Hall of Famers. Uh, Ortiz voted for seven players in his Hall of Fame, and it looks like he is not voting for the guys that are are the group of players accused of and or have maybe admitted to taking performance-enhancing drugs. So he did not vote for Andy Pettit, Manny Ramirez, Alex Rodriguez. But he did vote for these seven players. Bobby Abreu, Carlos Beltran, Todd Helton, Andrew Jones, Jeff Kent, Scott Rowland, and Billy Wagner. Now we're going to take it to Jesus, where he can talk about why Billy Wagner deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. We're going to start with Billy Wagner, who you voted for. Why does Billy Wagner, in your eyes, deserve to be a Hall of Famer? Well, Billy Wagner is one of the greatest closers in baseball history. And if you consider that Mariano Rivera was a unanimous selection, the only player in baseball history to be a unanimous selection, that tells you the value of a closer. So you start from there, but then you look at his numbers and you compare them against some of the greatest pitchers, greatest relievers of all time. Opponents batting average, this is comparing to among all pitchers all time. Opponents batting average, 187, first all-time. Strikeouts per nine innings pitched, 11.92, first all-time. Hits per nine innings, 5.99, first all-time. Whip, 0997, second all-time. And then you start thinking, okay, well, how does he compare to the relievers? Well, obviously, he's the best among all the relievers compared to the all the relievers in the Hall of Fame already with – opponent batting average he's second in whip to rivera era plus second to rivera ahead of hoyt wilhelm trevor hoffman bruce Souter, lee smith 
Goose Gossage, Raleigh Fingers, ERA, only behind Rivera. Strikeouts per nine innings, ahead of all those guys. Saves, compared to Hall of Famers, he would be fourth among the Hall of Famers if he got in. Save percentage, third, 85.9, just behind Rivera and Hoffman. You know what I'm saying? Like, he belongs. And I saw him. I talked to him all the time. I've had him on my podcast. I covered him when, when I was the Astros beat writer for the Houston Chronicle. He was as automatic as you could be for a closer and one of the best closers of his era. And that's how I judge him. Interesting stuff there from Jesus about Wagner. And I, I have to agree with him on most of these parts. The The fact that Closers have become such a more prevalent part of baseball and part of how the game is played today. You see what happened in the 2022 World Series, the 2022 playoffs. The Astros strongly won a World Series because of the strength of their bullpen. And you have guys like Ryan Presley, who probably came very close to winning World Series MVP. You have a no-hitter combined with guys like Brian Abreu and Rafael Montero and just the role that a, a guy like Abreu, Montero, Hector Neris, Presley, those guys played in the playoffs. The the rise of the modern closer, Mariano Rivera being tops among them. And, he, and as Jesus mentioned, he's a guy that unanimously got in the Hall of Fame, which has been nearly impossible to do for years. And now Mariano Rivera is seen as the greatest closer of all time. He gets in on just the strength of him as a closer. And so Wagner played in a very closer-centric era. He played at the same time as Rivera. He played at the same time as Trevor Hoffman and Rob Nen and Eric Gagne and all of these Brian Wilson, all of these superstar closers where closers were starting to get paid money. And now we're in an era with even more, you know, superstar closers. Guys like Craig Kimbrell who came up. The Mets have Edwin Diaz. Presley has turned into a closer. Uh, all these teams have closer as a position to get paid. Edwin Diaz just got a $100 million contract as a closer. And back in the day, it just wasn't as prevalent. Raleigh Fingers and Goose Gossage and Lee Smith, those guys were known as closers, but not every team had like a shutdown closer. Whereas today, for the most part, you would say like 22 out of 30 baseball teams have some sort of, not necessarily a superstar, obviously, but a Filthy, just such a good pitcher at that closer position, and it's not the way that it happened years ago. But I want to go through this Hall of Fame ballot, and if I had a vote, which I don't, and for good reason, because the guys that have votes have been covering baseball for a long, long time. So I'm going to go through Jesus's ballot. So first of all, we're going to run through again who Jesus voted for. Bobby Abreu, longtime Phillies outfielder, and he's a guy that was 20-20, 20 home runs, 20 stolen bases, almost more than any other player in baseball. It's him and Barry Bonds are really these 20-20 guys every year for, for a long time. I love Bobby Abreu. I love the kind of player he is. I would not put him in the Hall of Fame. Carlos Beltran is a little bit more of an interesting case. He had that big playoff run with the Astros uh, in 2005, then signed by the Mets, uh, and had a really bad year his first year, but then he helped power the Mets to the 2006 playoffs and was an MVP candidate for a few years. And then even after that, 
uh, when he got traded to the Giants, had this extended career with the Giants and the Cardinals and then the Yankees, and then came back to the Astros and helped the Astros win the 2017 World Series, and of course was one of the main architects of the cheating scandal in 2017. And and when Jesus and I were talking, he had mentioned that that's the big thing holding against him because when you put up his stats against other center fielders, Beltron favors very highly. I would not vote for Carlos Beltran. It's close. He's one of the greatest switch hitters of all time. He's one of the better center fielders of the era. I just think that there is, uh, it's, it's close. To me, he's in the same uh, group as Andrew Jones. And Andrew Jones is another guy that Jesus voted for. He's got Helton, Jones, Jeff Kent, Scott Rowland, and Billy Wagner. So I would say yes to Helton. I would probably say no to Andrew Jones, no to Jeff Kent, yes to Scott Rowland, and yes to Billy Wagner. Um, if we're going to go through this list, we got Abreu, who I say no to. Bronson Arroyo, no. Carlos Beltran, no. Mark Burley, no. Matt Kane, no. R.A. Dickey. Cy Young winner is a knuckleballer, no. Jacoby Ellsbury, no. Andre Ethier, no. J.J. Hardy, shout out uh, Sabino High School in Tucson, but no. Todd Helton, yes. Todd Helton was one of the best hitters for over a decade of baseball, and yes, he played in Colorado, but he is a Rockies franchise icon. And the way that I look at the Hall of Fame ballot for Major League Baseball is can you write the story of baseball without this guy? And if the answer is yes, then he is not a Hall of Famer. The Baseball Hall of Fame, I believe, is tougher to get into than the Pro Basketball Hall of Fame or the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And I think that it's difficult to write that the the 2000s era of baseball without Todd Helton. He was just simply one of the best hitters in the league for a long time. He was up there. And I know the Rockies didn't have a whole lot of postseason success other than their their Rocktober World Series run where they lost uh, in 2007 to the Red Sox. But Todd Helton was the best player on this team for years and years and put up these great compiled total numbers and played for a long time. And so to me, Todd Helton is a Hall of Famer. Torrey Hunter. Exciting player, not a Hall of Famer to me. Andrew Jones, so Jesus has voted for Andrew Jones. I would not vote for Andrew Jones. I would vote for Chipper Jones. That that Braves longtime team was built around pitching. There was a lot of winning. There was very few World Series winning. Uh, I like Andrew Jones. He's To me, he's cut off, right? This amazing defensive player. The, the offensive numbers, to me, are just not strong enough. Jeff Kent, uh, who Jesus has in there, I would say no to Jeff Kent. Great player to me. You can write the story of baseball without Jeff Kent. Uh, John Lackey, no. Mike Napoli, no. Johnny Peralta, no. Andy Pettit, a lot of postseason success. He's got the PED questions. I would say no to Andy Pettit. Manny Ramirez and Alex Rodriguez is where it gets interesting. So I am pro putting the steroid guys in the Hall of Fame because I believe you cannot write the story of baseball without A-Rod, without Barry Bonds, without Manny Ramirez, who, by the way, is first all-time in postseason home runs. Jose Altuve is, I think, a couple postseasons away from breaking Ramirez's number. And yes, Manny Ramirez has been uh, accused of PEDs, but Manny Ramirez was a massive part of helping the Red Sox end their 86-year curse in 2004 and then winning for them again in 2007. He is an icon in that franchise. He was part of the 90s Cleveland Indians teams who were so good and made to the World Series in 97. Manny Ramirez was one of the best players in baseball for a decade and a half. And I think that you can write all you want about the PED stuff. You can asterisk in the Hall of Fame. You can set up a PED wing of the Hall of Fame or... I've been to the Hall of Fame, right? And so you you have these rooms and these sections of these eras of baseball, um, and then you have the Hall of Fame section where they have the plaques. 
put it in the 90s era before you walk into the plaque room that this era, the late 90s, early 2000s, was dominated by a conversation surrounding steroids, that baseball was struggling uh, to gain viewers back after the mid-90s strike. And 98, the summer of long ball, the, the chase between Manny, uh, not Manny Ramirez, between Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa and then Ken Griffey Jr. to a lesser degree, helped put baseball back on the map. And from 1998 through, you know, the early 2000s or whatnot, baseball was just this electric product, right? Um, you had the Yankees World Series dynasty from 96, 98, 99, 2000. They lose to the Diamondbacks and the walk-off in 2001. They lose to the Marlins in 2003. You have an evil, evil empire, right? You have a villain of baseball, which I think the Astros are kind of currently the villain. But when I was growing up, I was uh, nine years old in 2000 when my favorite team, the Mets, played the Yankees in the World Series. And the Yankees are a villain. You need heroes and villains in every sport. And I think that's why basketball sells so well because you have guys that love a certain player or a team. Mostly it's players, especially internationally. You have people who are fans of players more than teams, which is kind of how soccer fandom is um, around the world where like if you're from Madrid and you're a Real Madrid fan, you're a Real Madrid fan because you're from Madrid. But if you're someone who loves soccer and you're from Paris and you love Ronaldo, you're a Real Madrid fan because you love Ronaldo, right? Not because you've ever been to Madrid. And so basketball fandom is like that around the world. If you're from Greece, like I've been to Greece where Giannis Antetokounmpo jerseys, Greek national team jerseys sold everywhere. So the Milwaukee Bucks, who are, you know, in the most, uh, like a mid-sized city in the Midwest in America, Milwaukee, Greece is loves Milwaukee, right? And they're all Bucks fans because of Giannis. And so I think that fandom kind of is more similar to basketball. But you have heroes and villains. You have LeBron, who's a hero to millions. You have LeBron, who's a villain to millions. You have Steph Curry, who's a hero to millions. You have Steph Curry and all these Golden State players at the time, like Kevin Durant and, and Clay Thompson and these guys, who are villains to all the people who are LeBron fans or the people that aren't Golden State fans. And so that was the same thing with baseball. Derek Jeter is, you know, respect, captain, whatever. He's a villain to a lot of people who are not Yankees fans. Derek Jeter is an overrated fraud to all these fans of teams who are not Yankees fans. The Red Sox hate the Yankees and Derek Jeter. The Yankees hate Manny Ramirez and David Ortiz and, and all these guys and Pedro Martinez and whatnot. And so for baseball to do as well as the NFL and some of these uh, other sports and marketing, you need those heroes and villains. But we're going to finish up here with uh, this Ballot. So I would say yes to Manny Ramirez, yes to Alex Rodriguez, no to Francisco Rodriguez, yes to Scott Rowland, one of the best offensive, defensive, uh, third baseman of all time, no to Jimmy Rollins, yes to Gary Sheffield, 500 home run club, won a World Series. I know there's PED allegations, but he's got the numbers, he's got the pedigree, he's a great player, no to Houston Street, no to Omar Vizquel, yes to Billy Wagner, no to Jared Weaver, and no to Jason Worth. So that is our baseball section uh, of our Houston Sports Weekly podcast. When we come back, we're going to have Aaron Wilson talk about the Texans and the NFL and what the Texans should do this offseason to try to catch up. And it doesn't feel like they're far off based on how, uh, how bad the AFC South is, but try to catch up in the AFC South and what to do with either that first or second pick, depending on how these next couple of games go. You're... Watching, you're listening to the Houston Sports Weekly Podcast on KPRC 2 Plus. Welcome back to Houston Sports Weekly, the KPRC 2 Plus Podcast. We talked about baseball, the Hall of Fame potential, and now we're going to move on to football. We are joined by Aaron Wilson, our KPRC 2 
NFL and Texans insider. Aaron, glad to have you. Great to be here. Let's start with these final two games. The Texans are no longer in a spot where you're definitely going to get the number one pick. There's a chance they don't. If they win a game and the Bears lose out, the Bears get that pick. How bad would it be for the Texans to not get the number one pick? It's a bad outcome, but there's no way to legislate losing and make these guys lose. What I anticipate is they will attempt to win the games. And there's no lock that they'll win. I mean, they are a team that's won two games and tied once. So to say, like, oh, well, they'll definitely win because they're playing pretty well, no, you can't think that. I mean, they have won nine in a row against Jacksonville. Jacksonville's trying to keep the momentum going. They're on a real streak right now. Trevor Lawrence playing really well. The Colts game may be hard to lose. They're that bad. And the Texans are playing some pretty solid football. It's just hard to ask the players and the coaches to intentionally lose, and they're not going to do that. And so I know for especially uh, social media and talk radio, they're like the players. It's just it's, and it's sort of this leap of logic. A lot of people don't always get to, but I understand it really well. And it just comes down to self-interest. So if you're a player and you're putting out some good film, it's for the rest of the league, it's for your raise, it's for potentially having a job at all in the NFL. There's no way to tell these guys, hey, take it easy. The only way to do it is to bench guys. So if you want to lose the game, go start Jeff Driscoll, bench Davis Mills, or start Kyle Allen, things like that. Play backups, and that would probably mean Nick Casario overriding. It's a really bad look when you try to tank. And they did it in Philadelphia when you remember with Nate Sudfeld. Yeah. And they got crushed. I mean, it was... It was a bad look. Because I think the other team had a chance to make the playoffs and they had yes. a chance to stop them and they just sort of kind of It got dumped got walked on all big over. time. Yeah. I mean, the Texans have had a lot of embarrassing moments in recent years. Some of them self-inflicted, some of them like Deshaun Watson related. I just don't see it. I think they'll attempt to win the games and it's no lock that they will win the games, but there's a good chance they split these last two. I yeah, that's, they, that's probably going to happen. They have a chance in each of them and... Part of the reason they have a chance against Jacksonville is they have a history of beating this team. The other part is that the way that I understand the AFC South race, no matter what happens in either the Titans-Cowboys game or the Jaguars-Texans game, everything is on that Week 18 game between the Jaguars and Titans. Absolutely. So the Jaguars can lose, and it won't matter. And the Titans can lose, and it won't matter. The Jaguars can win, and then if they lose Week 18, they still lose. I mean, Trevor Lawrence has a toe injury. has been limited in practice. There's a chance that, despite what they've said, Doug Peterson saying he's going to play everybody, that then you, hey, you know, it didn't feel good, or let's get him out of here. He he played a little bit. The Texans, I mean, some of these guys are rushing the pass route pretty well, like Obo Akaronko, Jonathan Grenard. I mean, they're getting after guys. They had four sacks on Malik Willis. You know, what if Malik Collins ragdolls Trevor Lawrence the way he did Patrick Mahomes? That's a bad outcome. That's what you don't want because – they have a chance to make the playoffs. The Jaguars and Doug Peterson are doing a good job right now. I just I wouldn't even play them against Houston, but I mean I think they will. I just wonder if they're going to be all in and maybe he comes out of the game. If they get a lead, I could see them like, eh, you know, what, let's see if we can run the ball and have just the backup the do it. Yeah. The reasons why I think Jacksonville could win this game besides if they play all of their big guys is ATN. And they didn't stop him last time. They should have. They would have won that game if he had gotten the ball more, in my opinion. And he didn't get the ball enough. Now he gets the ball plenty. And he's a threat. 
in the backfield. He's a threat, catching the football. Really good football player. Christian Kirk's playing well. They've got some good guys. They've drafted so high for so long. They've got so many first-round <laughs> picks on this team. Yeah. And they spent a lot in free agency. and They spent a bunch of money. I don't know. I think it's not an easy they game. They do have some weapons. Christian. Everyone made fun of that deal for Christian Kirk, but when you put together Christian Kirk and Zay Jones isn't a bad player and Marvin Jones isn't a bad player, it, it seems like Trevor Lawrence and, and Travis Etienne, he has some weapons. Yes. And they can score at a high level the, the game they put together against the Cowboys, which also the Texans look good against the Cowboys, which is odd because the Cowboys can look really good against some teams and not look good against the worst teams. But it seems like they have a little bit of juice. The Jaguars do. And this is very different than the way they looked last year with Urban Meyer. Very much so. And the fact is, the culture was so bad last year. Guys just really didn't want to be there. I, I would say in every level of the building, all over the building, there were some toxic personalities. And they got a lot of those folks out of there. And now you're pulling in the same direction. It's a better vibe with the Jaguars. It's a real small market. It is one of these markets where if they win even a little bit, the support from the fans, it's going to be there. If they don't have other big league franchises, I mean, the football. The jumbo shrimp. Yeah, but it's, double a it is a football town. I mean, I used to work in St. Augustine, uh, which is a, you know not far from Jacksonville. So I would do Jags games when Mark Brunel was there. And uh, at the time, like Pete Prisco was the main beat writer for the other newspaper. And Tom Coughlin was the coach. So this is education for me. I'm right out of school. Yeah. And I covered the Jags, and I covered them in the playoffs. And they were a pretty good franchise. They had Fred Taylor. They had some good players. But they were so excited. And the town is, like, hungry for a winner. It's a college football town and its history. But, you know, they've got a pro football team long enough now that they just want to win. Yeah. And they've had some good players like Tony Baselli, et cetera. But, you know, it's been some really lean years for the Jags. And now they're starting to come out of it because they've, you know, finally got a head coach that looks like a real coach. And so I think that's a big change. Back in the day, I used to have a Fred Taylor rookie card. And I had a Tavian Banks from Tavian Banks played for the oh, Jaguars. Yeah, Iowa, yeah. So I had a, a Fred Taylor rookie card. And we were at the Jags game, I want to say, in 2020 in Jacksonville, maybe last year. And uh, I needed to find the bathroom in the press box. And I asked a guy, and it was Fred Taylor. So I asked Fred Taylor where the bathroom was. I got his rookie card. I thought that was, that was he, funny. He could have been more friendly. I covered some of his games when he was playing for Steve Spurrier at University of Florida. So uh, my Saturdays, I would do high school football uh, in St. Augustine. Generally, we wouldn't travel a whole lot. We suppose we go to uh, Ponte Vedra, covered uh, Tebow's where, uh, high school. Yeah, <laughs> where um, the Ponte Vedra Beach is where the TBC, nice high school. Uh, TBC uh, I got Sawgrass. To, I got to cover that, yeah. yeah. We covered a local guy named Lynn Matisse. I followed him around. But, yeah, that was fun. And then Saturdays I would go to Florida games, and then Sunday I'd do the Jags game. So I'd do about three football games a week. And, you know, for a young reporter, this is a good experience. This is, you know, good high school Florida football. The Gators scoring half a hundred every week, and then – Covering an NFL team, so this was a uh, really kind of where I got my start. Uh, I'm talking too much about myself, but the Jags. Put <laughs> That's in perspective, what podcasts are for. Yeah, put it in perspective. They right now are on a roll, and I just wonder if Peterson's going to say, "You know what? I'm just going to try to win the game." Yeah, and I kind of have a hunch. And try to will. put them at which is it's funny is if they lose and then win Week 18, or if the Titans lose and win Week 18, you're going to have an eight and nine division winner. So the, the kind of the next point that I'm getting to, we. Th- feel like the Texans are far away. But because of how bad this division is, are they really that far away considering their in-division record is 2-1-1? One, and one? Well, they could be just like these teams where in this bad division they come out of it, especially if they get out of this year with a real quarterback. Right. So let's say they get Bryce Young and 
what if Bryce is the real deal? And he's a, you know, just for size comparisons, he's a mobile quarterback. Let's say he's like Kyler Murray, but with a great attitude. <laughs> and so you like you Kyler know, Murray, but he doesn't play Call of Duty. Yeah, like you know, he's into football. Yeah. I mean, everything we've heard about him is this guy has leadership qualities. He's a good teammate. He's a good person. Everything he checks a lot of boxes. Yeah, except for height and weight. He's he's very small. So let's say that happens, and he's dynamic. And you keep a lot of these decent defensive players around, and you've got Damian Pierce, you got a Pro Bowl alternate running back, and you get a real number one wide receiver. Maybe you draft one. Yeah. And you got John Mechie. It doesn't sound so bad. Maybe you're a 500 or close to 500 team. And at least you're competing with Jacksonville and Tennessee to try to be in the yeah. mix to win the, this bad division. Is that out of the question? No, I don't think it is. I think that if they have a great offseason – and they parlay the Deshaun Watson trade with the two top ten picks, even if they whether they pick first or they pick second, yeah. they are going to come away with a quarterback. For everyone that's really worried about it, by the way, the Bears are they've got Justin Fields. They've got a quarterback. That's it's, the thing I was thinking about. They're gonna probably Do draft, the Bears need a quarterback. They're gonna entertain all these trades and what they'll probably wind up doing is drafting like Will Anderson or uh, you know, I guess the Georgia guy, the D tackle has some character concerns have been raised, nothing real Jalen specific. Jalen Carter, right? Yeah, he's he's good, but you know, let's say Chicago goes defense, and the Your Texans quarterback's have, right there, and it doesn't matter. Yeah, you pick whoever you want. Do you want him? Do you want Stroud? You want Levis? I don't think they would. I think it's going to be like the best two are Stroud, and you know the Florida kid is very talented, but Anthony very Richardson, raw. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to run through a couple of quick topics here. Is Lovey back next year? I do not believe that he will be back. I don't think the last two games will have any bearing on his status, and it's tough. He didn't have a roster really that he could win with. Barring a change of heart, uh, you know everything I'm keep hearing around the league from various people in the industry, their expectation is this job will be open, and you know it's it's tough because Lovey, it was the compromised guy after a strange search last right. year, where you know Jack Easterby was pushing for Josh McCown, it wasn't well received by Cal McNair, Nick Casario didn't really hit them the right right way to hire a high school coach. They thought you know we're gonna get. Dunked on rightfully so if we do this. So they just wound up punting and going with Lovey. And they had another candidate that really wanted the job and that I think that is going to be in the mix, strongly, firmly in the mix, should this job become open as we expect. And that's Jonathan Gannon, the Philadelphia Eagles defense coordinator. He was kind of like a semifinalist, I'll say, where he was told right there at the end when we were thinking all signs pointing toward McCown – and then they flipped it to Lovey. But he was right there. And then two days before Lovey got the job, Super Bowl week, he finds out on a Saturday, hey, you did a great job. You're not going to get the job. Here's why I like him for the job. I think that he could possibly bring Frank Reich with him. I think he's modern. I think he's a strong leader. He has some commonality with Nick. He has some understanding of personnel. Everyone I've talked to about him, including Greg Williams and uh, the Zimmer family, they speak really highly of the guy. He's really smart. Uh, he coached Steve Nelson with the Eagles. I think he would be a quick mesh. I think he can run this defense, you know, with this personnel, I should say, implement his scheme to fit these guys. And I think he can form a coaching staff. The other thing is, too, is just like leadership. Can he be a leader of a man? Can he stand in front of the room? Well, he's never been a co- head coach before, but he just seems like he could do it. I have met him. Uh, he makes a good impression. Seems like the type of guy that people would gravitate toward. I think he's good with the media. 
uh, in a tough market in Philadelphia, very accountable, always yeah. points the finger at himself. You know, I didn't do this right. He specifically will explain where did he screw up. And you don't see him make a lot of the same mistakes twice, but I think he runs a nice defense. And big thing is modern with the way I believe he would approach practice, the use of analytics. Philadelphia is very heavy into analytics, more heavy into analytics than probably, probably almost every franchise in the NFL. And that is what they use a lot of to determine personnel, to determine scheme, decisions on strategy. I think that would fall right in line with Nick Casario. But, you know, until a job's open, it's not open. I've also heard about, you know, some affinity for Detroit Lions offense coordinator Ben Johnson, one of the hottest candidates in the NFL. Done a great job with the Lions offense. And getting an offensive guy would be attractive. So I think he will be of interest to a lot of teams. Shane Steichen, I keep hearing about him with the Panthers. Jim Harbaugh. Denver, <laughs> every year, or Indy. yeah, especially if they win the national championship. Yeah. I think I keep hearing Denver's gonna make a big push for Jim, so we'll see what happens. But yeah, right now, the expectation is there won't be a change in terms of the direction this is going now, the direction being that they will change again, and everyone will say, Well, how can you do that? How can you do that? And how can he get to go through a third coach? coaching search? Yeah, you know, they need to aim higher this time, yep. obviously, and maybe the third time they get it right, we'll see. Jonathan Gannon, uh, potential last year. Maybe we're going to be going through another coaching search this year. Clearly, there's going to be a lot of change when it comes to this franchise. A top two pick at worst, potentially a new coach, and maybe on their way up to try to at least place higher in what is a bad AFC South. He's Aaron Wilson, our KPRC2 NFL and Texans insider. This is the Houston Sports Weekly Podcast on KPRC2+.